My guest today is the founder and CEO of SwanBitcoin.com. He also serves as an advisor to Unchained Capital, Bitcoin Venture Fund, and Riot Blockchain, and is a partner in Bitcoiner Ventures. I had a great time talking to him about his company, SwanBitcoin.com, and just talking about Bitcoin in general. So please welcome Corey Clipston. Corey, how's it going? What's up, RJ? And it has been a minute, man. <laughs> it seems like yesterday, but yeah, we we had uh, had a good run yeah. back in New York back in the day. Yep, those uh, ten June days. Yep. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> I left my liver on the dance floor. <laughs> so, man, thank you for coming on to this podcast. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be here and congrats on on doing this. I heard about it from mutual friends of ours after you reached out to me. It was funny. Our good friend Cameron, my former roommate, uh, a longtime friend of yours, was like, oh, you should go on RJ's podcast. And I was like, he just hit me up about it like yesterday. (laughs) So something was swirling around. It was meant to be. Nice. Well, good, good, good. Well, hey, let's jump right into this. Okay. All right. So what do you do? So I'm the founder and CEO of Swan Bitcoin, which is swanbitcoin.com. And basically we sell Bitcoin. We educate people about Bitcoin with lots of media and through all sorts of different channels and make it really easy for people to get started transferring their or converting their crappy fiat money, (laughs) government money (laughs) into the people's money, that beautiful orange coin, Bitcoin. All right. So the people's money. For those who don't know, and for those who think they know, but don't really know, can you tell us what is Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. So it's really just the first time that we humans have been able to send value over the internet without anybody else in the middle. So I think that's, it's a really important innovation. It's one that a lot of really, really smart people had been trying to solve for 30 to 40 years. And it was finally solved in a paper published in 2008. And then the network that was kind of the embodiment of the idea was launched in January of 2009. And so the last 12 years have basically just been us watching that happen and more and more people waking up to the fact that this actually exists and is possible. It's a really incredible innovation. All right. So without anyone in the middle, so it's decentralized, don't have the government over it. And then on top of that, it's transparent for everyone to see the transactions, but also you don't see who's the owner of balances, right? And yeah. who is behind these transactions? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pseudonymous. It's both anonymous and public. Mm-hmm. So the ledger is public and there for all to see. And so you can actually, a lot of companies and individuals do run pretty heavy analytics on the transaction records and can kind of figure out who's who to some degree. So it's it's an interesting balance. It wasn't created to be anonymous and it wasn't created to be totally transparent either. It was created specifically for the purpose of having a monetary system that couldn't be owned or controlled by any person. And so all of the other features and sort of aspects of it or characteristics of the system are in service of having state-free money or money out of the control of people with power. So some fun things about Bitcoin. There are only 21 million Bitcoins. There can never be any more. So that's kind of a fun thing because there's actually never been a scarce resource, like a truly scarce resource in the universe. There's more of everything except for Bitcoin. 
And so that's kind of a fun thing oh, to think about. Okay. Another concept that I think is really important for people to understand, and I think this will kind of dispel a lot of people's sort of fears or help them have a mental framework with which to combat some of the false ideas that might be promoted by, you know, a Financial Times or a New York Times or something like that. Some people that just don't quite get it and haven't put in the work is basically the three functions of money. So really, when you when you want to get somebody to start understanding what Bitcoin is, it's actually really important to understand what is money first. And money has three functions. A good money will be a store of value like gold or real estate. It will also be a medium of exchange. So that would be like the dollar bills in your pocket or, you know, like a credit card network like Visa or something like that is using dollars, but they're digital dollars. And then it'll be a unit of account, which means that you can actually price goods and services and you and your counterparty, the person you're trading with, will have a general idea of like how much the money is that you're using to buy that good or service. So that widely used unit of account. So interestingly, that's the progression that different monies go through as, as different assets or different media that we've used over time throughout human history have progressed. They generally, it's fuzzy, but they generally start as a store of value and then they become a medium of exchange. And then finally you're pricing goods and services and, and you've got that unit of account. So today the global reserve currency is the US dollar. It's also the primary medium of exchange. It's also the unit of account. Like most things globally are kind of priced in, in dollars. Bitcoin is really young. It is just now becoming understood as a potential store of value. I would say it's a speculative store of value and that basically people that are buying Bitcoin either believe or understand that it's going to be a money that's used for all three functions, or they may think it's only going to be used as store of value. So you see a lot of people saying like Bitcoin's digital gold and they, in many cases, their theses don't require them to believe that it will also become a medium of exchange and a unit of account. And it can still be worth significantly more than it is today, because if it's better at being a store of value than gold and gold is $12 trillion market cap, what's Bitcoin going to be twice that five times that because it's so much better at doing that job than gold. And today at less than a trillion dollars market cap, it clearly has a lot of upside, even if it never became that medium of exchange in that unit of account. But that's where I differ significantly with even a lot of these major institutional buyers of Bitcoin today, like the Teslas and the Guggenheims and the Blackrocks and the Fidelities. A lot of them, they're kind of limiting their thesis to like, hey, it's just a better store of value. I actually think that it will become a medium of exchange in that 15 years from now, we'll actually be able to price goods and services around the world in Bitcoin. And so I think it will actually end up becoming the global money across all three of those sort of stages of progression of monetization of an asset. And when you think about what the total addressable market is for Bitcoin as a store of value, that's when it starts to get a little bit mind bending. Mm -hmm. So if you take gold at like 12 trillion and then you take global monetary supplies, so just the amount of dollars and yen and euros and all those that are out there, that's about 90 trillion. So call it a hundred trillion. And then you've got the art market. A lot of that is store value. It's not really like the appreciation of the art. It's believing that somebody else is going to buy it for more in the future and that it will hold its value through the centuries. You've got real estate and housing and commercial buildings. And a, a large part of their value is actually not for productive use. It's really people storing value in these apartments in downtown Manhattan, or, you know, 90% of the houses on the strand in Manhattan beach are vacant because it's just Chinese and Russian dudes storing their value in those homes. So conservatively 15, 20% of global real estate is really store of value and not productive use. And it's probably more like 50%, which would kind of make sense when you look at the U S housing market being like two X overvalued versus the couple hundred year trend. 
right. we're probably overvalued right now by like double. And then you've got bonds, $100 trillion market with 30% of that negative yielding right now, which is crazy. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're paying people to, to take your money in the debt markets, which is wild. And then you've got stocks. You've got a lot of that is not supported by historical PE ratios. As you know, a lot of that is not supported by taking discounted cash flows of expected future dividends. You had a 2X run up in Apple stock without them changing their forecasts or their dividends. So you're just literally paying twice as much for that as you did before. You've got back in the debt markets, you know, you've got 10 years now where to get the same yield, you needed to own 10 times more bonds from 2010 to 2020. Like the yields dropped from 5% to 0.5%. So, you know, essentially to retire, you need $10 million instead of a million dollars. Yep. <laughs> so all of that is just this runaway inflation of the money supply that's just loading into all of these other assets and that can all just be stored better. So conservatively, something around $200 trillion addressable market for Bitcoin and mm-hmm. more aggressively around $400 trillion. And so your calculation when you're thinking about allocating into Bitcoin is basically how much of the market where it is the best tool for the job, how much of that market where it's superior will it get over what time frame? And that's how you have to think about allocating into Bitcoin. And 200 to $400 trillion equates to between 10 and $20 million a coin. And we're at about 50,000 today. Jeez. Wow. Okay. So it's worth doing some reading is my point for your listeners and like your friends and whatever, like, you know, the amount of value that someone's willing to store in the Bitcoin protocol is very highly correlated with their understanding of Bitcoin. But I'm here as a former finance nerd, University of Chicago, MBA, worked for Google and Morgan Stanley and Microsoft and McKinsey. And I've, you know, been part of building 40 something startups in the last eight years. This is all consuming for me. And it's what I chose to spend my life on. And I started the company after understanding Bitcoin and believing in that it wasn't the other way around. So I'm not here. I'm not here like pushing something that I sell. I was pushing something and then decided to sell it after I, after I felt like it was the mission. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about when you started Swan Bitcoin and why you started it. Yeah. So I actually started out because I really believed in, in that, that education was the marketing. And so the first product that I set out to, which I just built with a dev shop, and I was just kind of like, let me get into the space and mix it up and meet people. And and then I'd figure out maybe something bigger to build. So I started with a gifting product that bundled a gift of Bitcoin along with like a year of education, which ended up just turning into a book that we're publishing. So I launched givebitcoin.io on like a quarter million bucks with a dev shop and a couple friends basically in about four months. And we got that live in like November of 2019. And then in that, we actually had the ability to buy for yourself for either the giver or the receiver in the product. And like that very quickly took off and was way more than our gifting volume. And so we decided over the holidays of, of 2019 to split it out and launch a new brand and a new site called Swan charge forward and got that live in uh, March of 2020. So we've been live just under a year. We got live March 30th last year and yeah, it's been quite a ride really just kind of amazingly straight up. The North Star for us was really figuring out that people who are into Bitcoin really hate sending people to Coinbase because Coinbase tries to fool their customers into buying altcoins, basically like pretenders to Bitcoin that are backed by VCs and essentially just pump and dump schemes. And that's kind of the whole thing. It's like a trading casino 
that's not good for most people. If you're a professional trader, sure, go trade. And it's like trading penny stocks. They go up, they go down, and like you're looking for volatility. But it's not the innovation. The innovation was Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a shot at being global money and none of these other altcoins do. And so we built something that has fees like 60, 80% lower than Coinbase, but also is safe as a recommendation. And so Bitcoiners recommend us like crazy because they finally have a place to actually send friends and family and people that they meet and to talk about on social media where they don't feel like that company on the receiving end of that is going to do harm to the people that they send there. And you also have a recurring uh, purchasing system, right? Can mm -hmm. you talk about that? Yeah, it's a really good way to get started is just like taking a nibble and thinking about taking a little bit out of your paycheck every day, week or month and just buying the same dollar amount of Bitcoin for each period. So we call it set it and forget it or swan and shell. Also, people call it dollar cost averaging. So we use automatic recurring purchase or auto DCA is kind of the shorthand for that. And it's definitely what we're best known for. That's what we launched with. And then it wasn't until November, December that we added the ability to do one-time purchases as well as these recurring purchases. But yeah, I mean, once you get into Bitcoin, it makes a lot of sense to think about it the same way you would contributing to a 401k out of every paycheck or making your mortgage payment every month and just having it be another, another leg of the stool when you're thinking about legacy defining wealth accumulation for your grandkids, grandkids. And now... You just need to be 18 years old and have a bank account. And also, mm -hmm. how long does it take to be verified? So about 85% of people are verified in a few minutes. Okay. Um, wow. If something goes wrong with the license picture capture or something like that, you go into a manual queue. I can't do much about that, but it takes like seven to 10 days if you're one of the unlucky 15%. But most people are verified right away and they can start buying right away. It's pretty cool. And then we also recently launched Swan Private Client Services. Had to use that PCS from the banking days, but uh, <laughs> right, nice. I wasn't a banker, but I worked for a bank for a while. Yeah, and that that's actually open globally and it's only for wire transfers for large amounts. Okay. So we launched that in January. It's taken off like a rocket and it's, it's really cool. And we handle corporate buyers, family offices, high net worth individuals, basically, unless you're on a terrorist list. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone except for about 6,300 names, we're good. Okay. <laughs> and then now these, these new customers, how are you getting new customers? Um, so that's where I think it's kind of fun. This I, I've saw some of the people that you've had on before, and I think you have a lot of business people in your audience. So I'll take it back to when we were running around New York, there was a little website that was really popular called College Humor, mm. uh, which ended up selling to Barry Diller and IAC. But basically they, they just did funny videos and like funny articles and they had no advertising. And all they did was sell t-shirts by a company that they owned. And so they monetized exclusively through that merchandise. And I, I always liked that analog. And I've actually tried to duplicate that model with a few other companies in the past to some success. So I love just putting out really great content that's very shareable and that, you know, be your own media platform basically, and then have something for sale. That's the natural result of what you're educating about. And Bitcoin's perfect for that. So we have two well-loved live YouTube shows. One gets turned into a podcast that's really popular. It's like number five or six Bitcoin podcast in the US. And then we are super active on Clubhouse, which is a new social media app. It's kind of like drop-in audio. So yeah, I, I own a club on there that has like 50,000 members or something like that, or 50,000 followers and huge people come in and, and talk. Like Eric Weinstein was in our room yesterday from the Portal podcast and Teal Capital. So he was in there for like four hours, mixing it up, talking about Bitcoin yesterday. I just hung up on one of our rooms right now where Max Kaiser's 
going nuts talking about Bitcoin. <laughs> so that's fine. Um, so like any time of day, basically, you can just pop in there and Cafe Bitcoin will have, you know, between like 300 and 3000 people yeah. talking and learning about Bitcoin. And it's just this kind of always on kind of flow of information and networking and people. Nice. All right. Now, and I've seen that definitely. So now you mentioned the institutional money flowing into Bitcoin, the Tesla, the Fidelity at Guggenheim. And I know you started in March of 2020, Swan Bitcoin, but you've been involved longer than that. What changes have you seen in this industry? Yeah, I mean, the the 2017 bull market that peaked like December 13th or December 17th or something went to like 19,700 was really a retail driven frenzy basically you know i mean i call it a cycle not a bubble because bubbles pop and don't come back and this thing just keeps going up and then crashing and then going back up again way higher and then crashing and then going up higher 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 again right but yeah i mean the the previous ones were very driven by individual purchasers and traders and there weren't many people other than sort of like really aggressive small hedge funds maybe out there buying alongside the retail guys that's very different now. I mean, it's it's a, a balance sheet strategy for a growing number of public companies. There's institutional scale financial buyers of Bitcoin going out, planning to hold for the long term. We'll see if they do. I think the tail end of if we keep on going in cycles and haven't escaped that, and my, and my suspicion is that we haven't escaped cycles with Bitcoin price, it should boom and bust you know, for a long time. You know, I think some of these corporate buyers may have weak hands and may sell as it starts to go down yeah. <laughs> and it could accelerate and crash 70 or 80% again. But I think it'll be from a much higher, my personal view is that it will probably be from a much higher plateau than where we are right now today. I think we'll be up in the hundreds of thousands in the next year. And then there'll be kind of like an ugly correction at some point, but I don't know when or how high it'll go or how much it'll crash. And it's impossible to know, you know, right. You can guess, nice, but we can't know. If we <laughs> right. knew, we'd trade it, but I exactly. don't. I just buy a little bit every day. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. All right. Now, can you talk about what a typical day of yours looks like being a CEO of Swan Bitcoin? Sure. Yeah. So my younger daughter turns three next week. So she wakes me up about 6.30. And uh, <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's that's why I start every day. Wow. So she wakes about 6.30, take her downstairs. I'm like checking my phone while I start to like get her some food and I'm mixing it up and trying to answer like urgent things. And that kind of continues getting her settled and getting my older daughter. She wakes up around 7.15 or 7.30 and then she starts class at 8.30 online up in her room on a computer because we're still no campus here in LA. And I'm just kind of like half on social media, Slack, occasionally taking a phone call in that sort of like two and a half hour block until about nine. And then I hand off and, uh, and my wife takes over. I let her sleep in a little bit. She usually stays up late and handles home purchasing and stuff, and whatever with her, her friends over in Europe. She's from there. So she has kind of like the late shift and is a late riser. And then, yeah, I'm kind of into my day at my desk. I usually don't schedule meetings before 10. I try to keep that first hour of like being at my desk to, to get my own stuff done. And then meetings at 10, kind of roll in team meetings, high net worth clients occasionally get put on my calendar and I have to like explain Bitcoin to somebody over in Europe or whatever. And then, yeah, I don't know, man. I just Bitcoin all day. Yeah, <laughs> It's all channels. I mean, you're, I, I'm solving problems across vendors and across my team making decisions and taking ideas and then filling the rest with just trying to be available and trying to be out there. I tweet a lot. 
I run a bunch of different telegram groups that I'm kind of like mixing it up in and kind of being available and being a public face. There's a meme out there on Twitter that people think that I'm actually like 10 different people <laughs> because I'm so available <laughs> and I'm, all, I'm in all these different places. So it goes both ways. They think that I'm like 10 different people logged into the same account, but then it's also a multiplier. They also think that I actually have a bunch of sock puppet accounts that are actually like imposters. So it's just, this is this whole joke that like Corey's everywhere or something, but I, I don't think that would surprise you given you've seen me operate yeah. socially as well. And it was, you know, this is kind of like the online version of that. It is. Um, it is. <laughs> it reminds me of that movie, uh, Multiplicity. But yeah, I don't know yeah. if you've seen that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, it was uh, Michael Keaton. Yeah, yeah. But no, it definitely, if they knew you, they know. <laughs> so now... So that's it, man. And then, yeah, the big challenge, the big challenge really is just shutting down. And, you know, yeah. I definitely have that dopamine response from the phone being around. And it's things like if I wake up, at, like if I wake up by accident at like 5.45 and my phone is within reach, my brain sends the dopamine and anticipation of being able to look at my phone and like see something on it. And so my brain will turn on and wake me up, even though I know that I want to sleep another 45 minutes or an hour if I can. Yeah. So I can't keep my phone near me. Yeah. That's so it's stuff like that, you know, or like, like in the evenings, if I'm downstairs like I, and I shut down at like 6.30 and I'm with the kids and my wife yeah. from like 6.30 until getting the kids down at 8.30 or 9, I leave my phone upstairs. I just try to have my phone on the opposite floor or at least the other side of the room. Or a lot of times, like if I don't want to go all the way upstairs, like if I'm hanging with my wife, I'll put my phone on the stairs in the other room so that it's like very deliberate. If you're going to go and do something work related again you have to consciously like say something to the person you're with and go do it. Cause otherwise it's just wreckage in your home, especially during COVID. That's smart. I need to do that. I think a lot of people need to do that. If people are trying to find ways to be present when they're not working uh, well, which is hard to say not working because you're just at home and your phone is right there. Your computer's right there. So that's a, that's a good way to do it. And I guess you do that on the weekends too. try to try to stay away. I do. Yeah. 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 As much as possible. It's yeah. really hard. I'm, I'm constantly struggling with it because it's like, yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I am an always on kind of person. I have been for a long time, really. I mean, I think I've been the first job that I actually liked. Sorry for the first seven. I didn't really try hard, but I started liking working when I went to Google in 2011. I'd been a professional allegedly for 12 years already, but I didn't like any of those jobs at all. But yeah, once I got into Google for two years, I liked that job and I cared about the success of my team and I wanted the people around me to rely on me. And my wife didn't sign up for that. I was very focused on work-life balance as a consultant. I would fly to a client Monday through Wednesday and work like a half day on Thursday. <laughs> and that's it, basically. Like I was not the most dedicated management consultant. And she got spoiled by that a little bit. And then, and I didn't even know, like finally finding something that I cared about and I did care about what we were doing at Google, not even close to what I cared about once I got involved in startups, that was like another two X, right. but Google was back to like how much I used to care about basketball yeah, or partying, you know, it was like <laughs> basketball was my first love. Partying was my second love. And then tech startups was my, my third thing that I've completely gotten obsessed over and thrown myself into. 
Well, good. You found your passion, though, again. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And, you know, we, we party, but it's yeah. like, you know, it's like a kid's pizza party. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't find a lot of time for hoops anymore, but I do run a lot. Nice. Yeah, same here. Same here. Now, skills. What type of skills and characteristics are important for what you do, all that you do? I think, like, writing and communicating and clarity of thought, I think, are, are probably the things I look for the most in the people I work with. And I think I'm good at writing and I'm good at coming up with ideas and I need other people that are good at those things for me to get to clarity of thought and to be able to communicate effectively. I don't actually think or speak in perfectly formed sentences and paragraphs, but the volume of ideas that I have and like the, the zero to one moment of having a good idea that then can be developed into something really good yeah. is a big spike for me. So over like all of the things that we do as a company and in marketing, 80, 90% of them are from me. So my life and how I structure my days and my weeks is a lot more like an advertising creative or like, like a copywriter, an art director at an ad agency than it is what you would think of as being like an administrator or something. Right. Yeah. So I guess then I, then I try to find like in my company, I try to make sure that I don't have any functional responsibilities. I try to make sure that the people that I work with actually have everything else handled so that I am completely available for ideas and, and the people side of things, hiring and, and just kind of like making sure everybody's problems are solved. It's, I, I often talk about being a chief enablement officer, not an executive, but I'm basically here to like clear roadblocks. Uh, delegate. You have the ideas and make sure that you have time to do all that you need to do and have other people help you to do that as well. Mm -hmm. All right. You know, but honestly, like even that word is such MBA speak delegate. <laughs> like it was never mine to begin with. I right. never, I never took something and moved it off my plate. I also have long, long subscribed to not having an assistant of mm -hmm. any kind and managing my own calendar. And this was something I already did and I think I got it, but then I think Nassim Taleb wrote about it or talked about it at some point, maybe he tweeted it. And it was basically like, if it's not important enough for you to schedule it yourself, then it's not important enough to take the meeting. Hmm. And it, it keeps my calendar a lot more free than it would be if I let somebody else schedule me. Right. I yeah. have nobody to get mad at. If I take a meeting that sucks, I only have myself to be mad at. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like it used to be like we have Google calendar and we have reminders and all these things like our, our phones and Google tools or whatever else you use is more than enough to fulfill the old function of an assistant. So I think a lot of people have one just out of ego, honestly. Yeah. All right. Now, like you said, you worked in uh, corporate America for a mm -hmm. while and then you did finally take that leap. What made you take that leap into entrepreneurship and how was that transition when you did take that leap? Well, I kept trying. I kept trying. I just wasn't good at it. I mean, I, I left McKenzie in New York and went out to Chicago to uh, open a restaurant nightclub. Like, that's what I was trying to do. And that didn't go well for me, even though the place still is around. I didn't end up benefiting from it. Partnership issues. And then I set up a private equity consulting firm because all I knew how to do was like sell consulting. And that seemed like it was going on at the time. So I did that from 06 to 08. So actually, I was an entrepreneur for two years post McKenzie. And then I did three more years of management consulting. And then I decided I wanted to get into startups while I was in management consulting. And nobody would hire me unless it was like VP of strategy for a series E company. 
with a role definition that would be like this narrow. <laughs> and like, I'm an idea guy that can't pay attention. I can't fill out a form to save my life. Like I'm just, it's horrible. I'm hiring a CFO right now because all these forms that I keep filling out keep getting rejected by the government. <laughs> like I just, I can't dot the I's. I just, it's impossible. I just sit here just in paralysis with like, <laughs> you know, this is like my stuff that I have to fill out. Gotcha. <laughs> it's just horrible. It's not me. Not my, that's not me. I would much rather have to prepare to meet like Elon and Warren Buffett and right. talk to them about billion dollar deals than like fill out that form. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, a lot of people would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. She's just terrible at it. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I apprenticed for seven years to get ready Not for you. doing this because I left Google. I already started like mentoring startups, trying to figure out startup stuff and doing Google for Entrepreneurs Week volunteering right. and stuff like that from like 2011 to 2013. And then I left and started doing startups in summer of 13 and I operated in one and I was advising and like, I used to work across all different functions. Like I would help with like marketing thing here and a strategy thing there and a finance thing there. And just kind of like getting on cap tables and investing a little bit and just taking retainer fees and stuff like that. So I spent like seven years working next to CEOs of 40 plus startups before feeling like, okay, I'm ready. I can do it. And my thing was the limitation was I couldn't fail. Like I still might, but I, I didn't want to think that it was a possibility because I had two kids and a wife and right. I didn't, I didn't want to start my own company until I at least believed that I would succeed. Yeah. And so I think that that patience and not feeling like, Oh, you have to start right away and you have to learn through failure. Like, I'm sorry, but I didn't want to be one of those founders that failed three times and then got it right on their fourth one. Cause I started in my late thirties. Right. No, you know? Right. So I just, I think patience was probably the biggest thing, like not, not starting anything until you really had a really good idea, a really good market. And you knew you could get a really good team, right? Those are the three things that VCs will always tell you is like idea market team are the three things to evaluate a startup on. And I, I figured at some point I got to the point where I could recruit a good team and then I had a great market. So I had two out of three and I actually didn't have a great idea at first, not a big lucrative idea, but it was good enough to get in. And I raised money on that. I told people like, I'm going to get in here. We're going to start a company. I don't know if this product is the thing, but like, I know this market is the biggest market in history. And I know that the product that I'm going to package up with something else, like Bitcoin itself is the best consumer product in history. Cause you can literally take crappy money and exchange it for better money. Right. <laughs> right. That's the best product. Cause you can buy all other products that exist and all other services that exist with the good money in the future. And it'll be worth your purchasing power will be significantly increased. Like at least that's what I believe. Yeah. Everybody's got to learn it for themselves. Right. Don't invest more than you can afford to lose. And it can go down just as fast as it can go up, but it's worth spending the time on education and buying a little bit as part of that education, understanding yeah. it. Yeah, that was good. And now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? Yeah. I mean, the people are just amazing. I mean, this is a lot of really passionate, really talented people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about working on a, a mission driven project and Bitcoiners are very much down for the mission. And because there's so many of them around the world and because there are so few Bitcoin only companies that you could potentially work for, there's someone spectacularly talented 
that will work for your company yeah. for anything that you would want to do. Mm. And so it's just this freaking team of superstars at every position. Nice. Yeah, it's it's wild. And and they usually hit you up, they DM you on Twitter and ask if you're hiring for their thing. Even better. And right. <laughs> and you just can't say no. So it's yeah, it's pretty spectacular. We've got like a bunch of people that have written a bunch of the top books about Bitcoin working for the company and a lot of the people that host the podcasts that are really popular work for the company and everybody wears a second hat. They have to do their job and then they also have to do educational content. Yeah. Now, what about on the flip side? What challenges are out there for you? What keeps you up at night? Um, honestly, really at this point, it's just kind of scaling issues. We need to make sure that there's enough Bitcoin for people to buy. Right. And so kind of just making sure that there's always sourcing of Bitcoin, you can actually run out of Bitcoin, not because there's not a clearing price somewhere in the world, but the Bitcoin at the over-the-counter desks that you're plugged into, those guys might not be rebalancing their debt, their liquidity in your favor. And so you've got to go and prod them and give them bullish, but believable forecasts. So they'll make sure there's enough Bitcoin available for your users, that kind of thing. So that's the constant struggle. Yeah. I mean, just kind of like, I don't know, I'm, I'm mostly consumed with just trying to spread the word and figure out clever ways to market when you're barred from advertising on Google, Facebook, and Twitter, mm. because there's so much scammy stuff, the scammy uh, stuff that Coinbase sells, you know, basically the big social platforms just threw up their hands and said, listen, you've got to be nationally regulated or a public company, in which case you're nationally regulated, uh, or we're not going to let you advertise. And so small companies, even the ones that are not scammy and that only deal with Bitcoin, they just, they don't have the time to sift through and see when 99% of these things are scams. They don't want to deal with the 1% that are not. So it's actually like a really big argument for this massive arbitrage that's available. If we do go public, which we're considering this year, we would actually be able to advertise on all these platforms and do like really smart paid user acquisition because we don't spend a dime on marketing. Spend a lot of money on staff to do education, which is our marketing, but we don't actually have any sort of direct ads. response marketing. We don't run ads. Got it. Okay. All right. Now, do you have any memorable moments that stick out to you in your career? Oh man. Yeah, I guess quite a few of them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I, I would be disingenuous if I didn't bring up nine 11, it's 20 years later now or 19 and a half years later. And I did work for Morgan Stanley at the time in private client services, doing uh, online marketing and email marketing and stuff for those, those rich folks. And it was the old Dean Witter offices in tower two and Morgan Stanley had, I think floors 40 through 70. I was on the 64th floor. So that was kind of the really like defining moment in my career that made me start to question the underpinnings of everything. Uh, like little things, obviously there was like the loss of life and that was horrible. And you know, just kind of like the, the depressing sense of being in New York after that and wanting to leave and go to business school in another city. That's why I went to Chicago. I had been planning to go to Columbia. So I left and had that perspective of going and missed it and came back for my summer internship in 03. And then I came back again for full time after graduating in 04. So I was always kind of like still drawn to the city, but yeah, I mean, it was really it was very sort of life altering and life defining and it made you really feel like valuing the days that you had and 
this is this ephemeral moment that we're not here for very long. And then like the weird juxtaposition of being somewhat affected, but not losing anybody that was close to you. Like mm-hmm. I kind of knew a couple people out of the 13, but like not really. Yeah. And then you go to business school and there's a couple people from Cantor Fitzgerald, which were this, like the top floors. And it's yeah. like, now you, you're going to complain about your 9-11 experience when they worked at Cantor. No, like they had it rough, right? People had real stories that really affected them and their family and I didn't. So it was kind of interesting. Yeah, I don't know, man. It was deep, man. I can't believe it's been 20 years, but it it led to so many things. Like it's broadly the reason that we're connected, right? Yeah. Because the time that you're supposed to be recruiting to get a job in business school, you're supposed to do that winter quarter. That's when you're supposed to lock it up. Oh, I guess what happened with me? I mean, in my case, I was just so jacked up. I didn't even know what I wanted to do heading into the second year of business school. And so I skipped recruiting on the off chance that I might stick around and go like an extra quarter the following year because you could only go through full-time recruiting once. Right. And then I went to Barcelona, which is why I met Cam and, and then I met your whole Texas crew after that. But that was basically because I wasn't done with school. I didn't want to go back to work yet. And right. I was like, I'm going to need an extra summer after all my classmates graduate, and then I'll do like two classes in the fall. So I did full-time recruiting in like fall of 04 after everybody else had already graduated. And I was just frank with them. I was like, listen, I wasn't ready. I also was way too young to go to business school. I was 24 when I started and I was just, you know, an idiot. I was a journalism major and didn't know anything about finance and stats and all the stuff that everybody else knew. So I just need a little more time to steep. So I don't know, man, everything has uh, everything has two sides of a coin. Like there's, there's positives and negatives about everything that we go through. And I went through stages of victimizing myself and then also realizing that I never gave myself enough chance to actually feel into it and realize even though other people had it bad or worse, you can't ignore what it did to you. And I ignored it for so long. I ended up like over partying for like an extra eight years when I probably should have been a little more focused on building my career and networking with people outside of a nightclub. (laughs) So I'm a late bloomer, but. But, you know, you you mentioned this a few times, though. It seems like you wait until you're ready, whether it's business school, whether it's entrepreneurship, whatever it is. It seemed like certain times in your life you weren't ready at the time and you waited till you were and you jumped right in there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably true. I'm, I'm a big procrastinator and that's, that's something that was always very natural to me to not do something that I didn't want to do right? and to put it off as long as possible until it went away or I, or I had to do it and was forced (laughs) to. And I think that it is a big part of, if you talk about like, how do I manage? Mm -hmm. I constantly put off big decisions for days and weeks. And I constantly, like, if we come up with something, I always say, let's all sleep on it. Let's talk about this next week. There's so much in corporate America of trying to make fast decisions and trying to pretend that you're being active, like action for action's sake or decisions for decision's sake. Yeah. And so many things just really don't need to be acted upon or decided. Yeah. And I think my desire to not do much work or not do many things that feel like work to me keeps on saving us from spreading ourselves too thin and keeps, keeps the whole company really focused and on the same mission as much as possible, because there's so many things that I just personally don't want to do. 
Well, I mean, you you know what you want to do and what you don't want to do, right? And so you're making the right decisions. Things are going well. So just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Man, I'm trying, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I could honestly, like, I could use a good night out at 10 June with the boys you know, just to let loose. Like, I'm not saying that's completely gone. It would be fun. But I don't know if I Mark think... and Eugene are still around. Do they have a bar in LA yet? Yeah, we'll do it at Catch. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah let's do it. Well, hey, Corey, we're at the end of this interview, man. Yeah. This has been great. Learned a lot about this. It was great catching up with you. We're going to head to this quick hitter session. We're going to ask you questions for fun. Okay. But before we do this. Can I give a resource? to people just to, yeah. to help them. Yeah. So my favorite book that I had been recommending to people since like early 2019 about Bitcoin was called Inventing Bitcoin. And I ended up meeting the author at a conference in like June of 2019. And he ended up being an awesome CTO and exited his company for like 275. And anyways, his name's Jan Pritzker. Now he's my CTO and co-founder of my company. And so we get to give away his book for free. Okay. So swanbitcoin.com slash free book. It's about a two hour audio book or maybe two and a half hour read. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I just like, I have yet to meet somebody that's actually read it and spent some time with it that doesn't understand Bitcoin like 10 times better than they did going into it. So it's a great place to start and doesn't cost you anything. Investing Bitcoin, Jan Pritzker? Uh, inventing Bitcoin inventing. by Jan Pritzker. Okay. And you can get a free copy at swanbitcoin.com slash free book swanbitcoin.com slash free book. All right. Yep. All right. Anything additional that you would like to talk about or oh, do you think any can... questions am I left off asking you? No, man, we're good. All right. It's good to see you again. Yeah. Well, let's go to this quick hitter session real quick. Okay. So first question, what's your favorite sports team? Seattle Supersonics. All right. Yep. <laughs> Supersonic. I love it. Uh, we'll be back, man. It's we're only a couple years away. <laughs> yeah, I remember back. you always talking about that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Favorite movie or show? Oh, that's tough. Uh, I'll, well, I'll do both. So, show, The Wire, mm. uh, movie. Mm, that's so tough. There's so many good movies. That's really hard. I'm not going to say The Godfather or Godfather Two, even though they're obvious. Godfather uh, Two. I'll throw. I'm going to throw Ronan out there. Oh, all right. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, peak De Niro. All right. <laughs> Favorite musical artist or group? Oh, that's hard too. Oh, man. You introduced me to well, MIA. I did. Yeah, yeah, I was early on that one. Yep, I was going really to shows with a couple hundred people. Yeah, um, it took me to like that one. 0506. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, we had some fun times when she was getting big. Mm. Mm, that's tough, man. I'll just throw my brother out there, All right. Matt Garrity and his band 17th Chapter. He just got the band together and they've, they're about to finish two new albums for the first time in 12 years. That is uh, awesome. Their first and only album came out in 08 and he got like almost the same people back together over the last six months and they have two albums coming out. So uh, yeah, I'm going to go with my brother as my favorite artist. Too cool. I like that. All right. Favorite vacation spot? Bodrum on the Aegean in turkey right and last one favorite food or drink mm, that's a good one man honestly right now i'm so glad to have my own home espresso machine so i just i love making myself like a, a dope double espresso i like a tiny bit of sugar nothing else no nothing just oh, a little, okay. little bit of sweetness double espresso in the little cup being all fancy and pompous with the tiny little cup. 
do a double do a double shot after a big breakfast or a big lunch and you're set for the day yeah okay <laughs> well hey Corey, this has been great thanks a lot hey just congrats on all that you guys are doing at swan bitcoin and, and everything that you're doing in general keep doing what you're doing man and can you let people know how they can contact you if they have any comments questions and i, I know you mentioned a book yeah. uh, can you also talk about you mentioned a podcast so that and clubhouse yeah. how they can get a hold of sure. you yeah so our, our club is cafe bitcoin so that's easy to find. You can just follow Cafe Bitcoin. I'm on Twitter at Corey Clipston because if you're listening to RJ, you'd probably be somebody that he would introduce me to anyway. Anybody that hears this can email me directly at Corey at swanbitcoin.com and I'll answer. If you got questions about Bitcoin or startups or anything, whatever, if I can help, C-O-R-Y at, at swanbitcoin.com, hit me up. Our YouTube shows are at youtube.com slash swansignal. So that's pretty cool. And then the whole Bitcoin industry basically is on Telegram, the messaging app. So we have a lot of really active rooms there. So t.me slash swansignal is kind of the main one. So if you want to mix it up and learn about Bitcoin and, and meet some Bitcoiners, that's a good one to hop into. You can put that into any browser and it'll go right to the Telegram group. Great. Well, definitely been on the clubhouse. I'm going to, going to reach out and get this book too. So thanks so much, Corey. Yeah, my pleasure, Rodolfo. Good yeah, to see you. Uh, good to see you too. And have a good one. Okay, bye. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.